Basel III Endgame will make it harder for consumers to buy a house or a car. It'll hurt the small businesses that rely on loans to grow, and it'll reduce savings for people with money in pension funds. Regulators propose capital requirements would take a toll on families, seniors, farmers, and small businesses. Washington, scrap Basel III Endgame and start over. Hello, listeners. It's Thursday, August 17th, 2017. I'm Nancy Cook, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We're going to start off this week's show talking about the aftermath of the violent clashes in Charlottesville and why the president decided to double down on his idea that both sides were to blame for the violence. Then we're going to talk about the special election in Alabama, a runoff between an outsider Trumpian-like candidate and his opponent who has the support of both the president and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And finally, we're going to delve into all of that West Wing intrigue about Steve Bannon's future and why West Wing aides who say they're frustrated aren't necessarily resigning from the White House. Some quick housekeeping things before we dive in. Remember, you can email us with questions at nerdcast at politico.com. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe to The Nerdcast, rate us, and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And I want to welcome uh, the Nerdcast panel. Joining us, we have regular Nerdcaster Eliana Johnson, national political reporter. Hello. And joining us also, we have Ali Watkins, who's a national security correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us, Yeah, thanks for having me. Our first data point is 47. That's approximately the number of hours it took President Donald Trump to condemn white supremacists by name following the violent protests in Charlottesville. Let's start with Eliana on this one. Why did it take the president so long to call out the KKK, white supremacists and neo-Nazis only to then backtrack on his more gracious statement? What was going on? I think deep down, these white supremacists, neo-Nazis and assorted groups that were marching in Charlottesville were in part marching in the president's name and claiming to be ardent ardent supporters of the president's. There were a lot of Make America Great Again hats uh, in in that crowd and Trump-Pence signs there. And some of the leaders of that rally had said, um, among them, the white nationalist um, Richard Spencer had said he has a psychic connection with Donald Trump. And the Um, The white nationalist David Duke had said that the goal of the rally was to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. So I think Trump on a certain level knew that these were uh, his political supporters and constituted a sort of political core within a core of um, of ardent, enthusiastic supporters. And he had tremendous difficulty coming out and condemning them. Um, explicitly and by name. And I think what people really wanted to see from him was even though he's technically right that both sides in this rally um, were engaging in violent behavior, there was only one side that was claiming to march um, under the banner of this president. And they wanted to see him say that, well, you know, while while you, David Duke, or while you, Richard Spencer, claim to support me, I don't want your support. Um, You're not a part of the movement I represent. He simply didn't want to do that. And what was happening behind the scenes there? Like, what was the debate between the aides and the president? You reported a little bit on that this week. Look, I think his aides pretty much immediately knew that he needed to go out and um, at the very least condemn racism and bigotry and violence in general terms. And I do think had he done that without saying um, on many sides that that would have uh, that would have been sufficient. Um, But adding on many sides and dispersing the blame really caused an uproar. 
um, and it was over a relatively quiet weekend, and the media blowback was sufficient that um, what followed was a, a White House statement without a name on it that added fuel to the fire. And by last Sunday night, which was, you know, 36 hours after um, after the rally had come to a close, it was pretty clear to White House aides um, that president needed to come out and say something more definitive, name these groups by name. And we saw him do that by midday Monday. What's interesting is that the president did have a written statement with him when he came out to make his initial statement. And he he partly used it, but he ad-libbed when he spread the blame around to many sides. And when he came out on Monday, he stuck to a script, did what his aides wanted him to do, and temporarily uh, calmed the waters. But what we heard from him Saturday and then again on uh, what was it, Tuesday was what he really felt, which was there was plenty of blame to go around and um, a real reluctance to condemn specifically, you know, some of his core supporters. Now, Ali, you've been covering this from a little bit more of like the national security perspective and, and hate groups. And you wrote a piece about some of the legal protections that domestic hate groups receive from the feds. What are the different legal structures that would make it hard for the Justice Department uh, moving forward in their investigation to charge James Alex Fields Jr.? That's the guy that ran the car into the crowd and killed that woman to charge him as a terrorist. What's at stake there? So this is a really complicated conversation, which I am not a lawyer. So I may not I may <laughs> screw some of the legalese up here. But part of this is that um, there is no domestic terrorism statute in U.S. law. The the most frequent charge that we see, like the way that the terrorism charges tend to happen, happens strictly in reference to foreign terrorist organizations. We see a lot of material support charges, like if someone, you know, buys bombing material to, to help ISIS and stuff like that. There's no domestic terrorism charge. So some of this is just, you know, what's easier, what's the easiest way to get him in court prosecuted quickly. Um, and something like a murder charge is, is which is he is being charged under, I believe it's second degree murder. Um, you know, that's the, the system is already in place to handle that kind of charge. And it's going to move forward like that. Um, but it, th- this whole movement has, has been so interesting to me over the last two years, because people don't necessarily view it as a national security issue. Um, and, you know, we're not, I'm not saying that it's imminent that a white nationalist is going to drive a car bomb into the National Mall. But we're seeing this this churn uh, and we're seeing this propensity towards violence, this resurgent extreme far right. Um, and this conversation over where does domestic terrorism fall in a legal U.S. context um, has been a running conversation since pretty much after 9-11. Um, so – you know, the structures are in place to handle these kinds of crimes, but the designation of is it terrorism, is it not terrorism, are we going to call it terrorism and charge him with murder rather than, you know, some kind of material support charge, which there is unclear statutes for, um, that's that's part of the complication here is that there really isn't any clear path to charge a domestic terrorist by any standard definition with domestic terrorism because there isn't a statute in U.S. law to prosecute that. And just on these like on these groups, are we going to see more, you know, mobilizing and rallies of them? Do you have any insight into that? I mean, I think we're we're seeing that already. Um, in my 
when I worked with BuzzFeed before I came to Politico and before I had left BuzzFeed in earlier this year, I was doing some research into some of this, particularly these militia groups, um, because we have so you have the far right, you have the the alt quote unquote alt right and neo Nazis, white supremacists, and you also have this um, faction of like militia groups, which tend to be less politically aligned and are more just distrustful of government generally. But Trump has served as this kind of unifying factor between both of those sides. And we saw that very clearly in Charlottesville when you had these full fatigues, you know, guys carrying AKs, guarding essentially some of, you know, Richard Spencer's of the world and the more preppy, quote unquote, uh, alt-right people. So we've seen these groups kind of like merge. Um, and, And I noticed just in some of the digging that I was doing earlier this year, a lot of these militia groups feel very enabled under Trump. Um, you know, they're they're having much more, way more of a presence on social media. They're being way more active in their communities. They're doing these trainings. They're coming up with these plans for what I, you know, it's often kind of nebulous. But yeah, we're certainly seeing this um, the, this resurgent far right, which would be of more concern to the bureau and the national security apparatus, these armed groups who are very public about the fact that they're armed. Uh, And part of the problem, you know, even going back to the terrorist question, is when we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about unconventional weapons. We're talking about someone ramming a car through a crowd or we're talking about an IED or a bomb stuck in a mosque. We're not talking about guns. And that's where these militia groups can really be a problem because they tend to align with, you know, they're in some of these gun rights groups. And there's obviously this real reluctance from the FBI uh, and just domestic U.S. security service just generally to wade into policing that. Um, so that's it's a really multidimensional challenge that I think is only going to get more complicated. And Eliana, why is the president um, reluctant to distance himself from these groups? Well, I think he knows that many of many members of these groups are political supporters of his and that they're some of the most enthusiastic supporters of of his. Um, people talk about the Trump base. I think it's unfair to say that these are his base voters, but they're a small uh, core, you know, base within a base. And for political reasons, I think he he suspects it's unwise from a crass political standpoint to to condemn them and to distance himself from them. Um, it, you know, it's interesting because he takes a political hit on a different side um, for for failing to do that. But uh, but yeah, that's it's a pr- it's a pretty simple calculation. And what about these Confederate statues and the debate about them coming down? I mean, I saw in the New York Times site last night they were Baltimore was like taking statues down in the middle of the night. Um, where does that go politically? You know, the president had talked uh, about, you know, the fact that these people just were there to try to uh, protect a statue. What are we going to see there? Well, interestingly, there really wasn't anything in the literature that was distributed encouraging people to attend this rally about protecting the statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. But this has been a debate, you know, debate about Confederate flags and Confederate statuary that has come up and that Republican lawmakers have had to address. We saw Nikki Haley in South Carolina come out in support of removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina Capitol. And Trump is, um, you know, coming out in the, you know, on the opposite side. But really, I think he's 
taking an extreme position that diverges from where I would say I th- I think, and I could be wrong, but really where, where the vast majority of Republican elected officials are. And I think you'll hear them say not that we should get rid of these things, but that the appropriate place for them is not in public spaces, but uh, perhaps in museums or on on battlefields. I certainly don't have as good of a political lens into this. But I mean, we saw the tweets this morning already where Trump is calling them beautiful monuments and they will never be replaced. So um, I covered South Carolina politics, you know, before this iteration of our political spectrum. And it, it was, you know, when I went down there and visited, the, the Confederate flag is still flying over the state capitol. And that, it was that was so interesting to see that whole debate happen and um, I think Eliana's right in that it kind of articulates something that I think a lot of GOP lawmakers would really just prefer to not deal with. And now they're kind of being forced to like actually deal with it. But it is kind of forcing this issue that I think a lot of people would have kind of preferred to just not bring up. I do think there's a way in which it, it- – this this is perhaps the most visible way in which Trump has given grievance politics, the grievance politics that emerged on the left, um, the idea that you're you're a minority group and you you've been oppressed. He brought it and delivered it to whites, and what he, and he's using the, this Confederate monument issue to stoke it and saying uh, you you white people, your history is being disrespected, it's being erased, um, and you're you're an aggrieved minority, and you need to stand up and defend yourself. And um, I think it's pretty clear that this has been damaging um, for the country. And you hear talk of it among Democrats um, a little bit. You heard President Obama say this after the election, but that they need to start talking to all people and not just to discrete, you know, interest groups. Thanks so much for joining us, Allie. Thanks for having me. And now we're going to hear a quick word from one of our sponsors. And now joining us is Maggie Severin. She's a political reporter and she covers a lot of the uh, campaigns. Uh, Welcome, Maggie. Thanks for having me, Nancy. So we're going to start with the data point 31. That's the share of the vote that Republican Luther Strange won in this week's Alabama Senate primary. Maggie, I want to start with you. Why should people care about this special race for the Senate seat and what does it mean for Trump world? Yeah. So, well, I'll start by saying just one thing about special elections like this, which is that they're just one tiny data point in a big election universe. Um, That kind of disclaimer aside, now we can talk about what it means and what we see in it. I think that when you're looking at Trump world, the interesting thing about this race is that we saw that Trump's endorsement doesn't necessarily mean that someone's a Trump candidate. And what I mean by that is that you had this candidate, Luther Strange, who was appointed to the Senate seat and now has to run in this special election. And Strange is really kind of seen as the establishment here. He has a lot of support by from Mitch McConnell. He has support from Trump. But he is in this case, the more establishment candidate out of the main candidates who are running in this field. And Roy Moore, who's this really kind of idiosyncratic um, Alabama celebrity judge to an extent, is someone who surged ahead. And no one really – should people have seen Roy Moore coming? Probably he's really well known in Alabama, but he's has this really kind of history that I think led a lot of Washington to dismiss him. He's twice been removed from the bench in Alabama for failing to follow court orders. Most recently, he refused to follow the Supreme Court's gay marriage decision when he was chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and then got suspended. Um, Roy Moore is in a lot of ways kind of the Trumpian candidate here. He's the outsider. He's got the celebrity power. He's not afraid to really speak his mind and throw a fit. So that's 
the dynamic that we're looking at that kind of tests this Trump effect among people. Um, very practically, I also note that if Moore gets elected, Moore won in the initial primary and they'll do a runoff in late September and then an election in December. You know, if Moore is elected to the Senate, that just makes it a little bit harder potentially for Trump and for Mitch McConnell to pass their agenda. You know, he's poised to be someone who's more of a Ted Cruz or Mike Lee or somebody who's willing to really speak his mind and not go along with the party line on something. And right now they're in a place where they could really use all the help they could get from their own party in order to get work done. So that's why you see initially saw McConnell throwing all of his support behind Luther Strange. And that could really complicate McConnell's job if more won, right, Eliana? Because there's a very slim margin for the Republicans to pass things through the Senate. McConnell really has to ideally needs to keep those 52 votes um, in line. And we already saw with John McCain's defection on health care, he does not have much margin for error. It's interesting. I'd be interested in your take, Maggie, because Roy Moore seems actually like somebody who would be pretty easily part of the Trump coalition. So I think if Trump had had his druthers, he probably would have endorsed Roy Moore. Yeah, that's what's so funny about it is that it kind of highlights that Trump, like it or not right now, is part of the establishment, right? If he, he has an agenda, so he has to be working with these people who are actually very different from him. Um, Roy Moore just isn't, you know, Trump needs soldiers right now. He doesn't need more Trumps. And what about the outside money that was raised? I mean, this has turned into a very expensive race. Isn't that right? Yeah. So another big player in this race, we talked about Trump and we've talked about McConnell and kind of the other Washington entity in the room is Senate Leadership Fund, which is a super PAC that was started last cycle that's aligned with Mitch McConnell and run by McConnell allies. And they raise in general and spend huge sums of money. Um, and they were really started for a variety of reasons. But kind of one effect is to be the central depository if you are a Republican donor and you want to back Senate races. It helps make things more efficient and it helps keep money, frankly, flowing to the right people at the right times. So Senate Leadership Fund has spent, to get back to your question, $4 million on Luther Strange, and they say they're going to spend $4 million more. Um, then you have, you know, the candidates raising and spending some money, and you have a couple other outside players, but it's SLF is really the main spender here. There isn't going to be nearly as much spent in this race as there was in Georgia. That was a $50 million race for comparison. But what's interesting is that SLF really has so far their presence in races has seemed it seemed like this solution worked, like centralizing Republican donations into this super PAC has been an effective way to keep Republicans in power and keep the right Republicans in power. And that's also kind of being tested here. It's like, is having all this McConnell money going into Alabama really helping Luther Strange? You know, we can't we can't take it out of the equation and see exactly how this is working. But it seems like there's a lot of kind of aggression towards the Washington money that's being spent in Alabama. So there's a fair amount being raised and spent. On the other hand, there's also just huge amounts of money that are also going towards the midterms and going to go towards the other things. So it's kind of a yes and no on the on the finance end. And what's the next step in this? Like when is the next uh, vote happening? So late September is when the next vote will happen. And that'll be strange versus more. So that's we're going to see a, a rush of funds into Alabama probably between now and then. Um, and then December will be the runoff. Doug Jones is the Democratic candidate. Um, he is not someone who's... Does he stand a chance in Alabama? <laughs> we've kind of... You know, it's funny because we've kind of seen... Ossoff is another great example of how there's like this Democratic base and they're riled up and they're prepared to like give a bunch of money to someone. And really, you know, nationally, Democrats are prepared to rush into these districts that are hard for them. 
Alabama, they're just that's not even happening in Alabama. You know, I don't think it's that <laughs> they're like, you guys keep it. Republicans, you keep it. And it's not like there's something wrong with Doug Jones. It's just this is a Republican seat. For whatever reason, this one has not got the zeitgeist for Democrats that some of these other races did that seemed almost within reach um, and then weren't. And does this say anything or does this portend anything for the 2018 midterms, Eliana? Uh, it seems to me that we're in a pretty anti-establishment uh, era in, on the right in particular and, and on the left. I think Bernie Sanders really signified that and Hillary Clinton's loss um, really uh, pounded it into the ground. It's interesting because I, I do think Moore's ref, uh, stand when he refused to remove the Ten Commandments um, from, from the courthouse and uh, it it is reminiscent of what's happening with Trump and these Confederate monuments. He's stoking precisely the same sorts of people and voters. Um, Moore has huge support among evangelical voters who are also huge supporters of Trump. So it does highlight this uh, sort of paradoxical position that the president was put in where he's backing Luther Strange because Mitch McConnell twisted his arm. But I do think that what we're seeing is this sort of uh, cultural backlash among white conservatives that is continuing into the the 2018 cycle. Yeah, you know, it's funny, and I'm sure that you've, Eliana, have had plenty of conversations with people too. Everyone knows there's anti-Washington sentiment and people are going out in the field now and like polling and doing focus groups and doing all that stuff. But I'm not sure it's fully sink in with people in Washington how much voters hate Washington and hate that. I mean, that means that voters hate politicians. They, you know, they hate everything about it right now. They don't want people who are of Washington elected to office. And it seems like that's still going strong. And Trump has indicated he's very much willing to kind of to stoke that. I mean, he woke up this morning and tweeted um, about a challenger to Jeff Flake in Arizona, who's been around a while and kind of run failed campaigns. But he's Trump is throwing his support behind these insurgent anti-establishment folks there and in Nevada. And he's not afraid to stoke that primary anger, except in Alabama, where he's backing Luther Strange. But And his attacks on Mitch McConnell are a great example of that. Yeah, Mitch McConnell is really funny in this race, too, because Democrats have demonized him for years. But I haven't seen, you know, the Republican candidates in Alabama have kind of turned Mitch McConnell into this, like, establishment boogeyman on the right that is not something I think I've seen really in this like this before. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Maggie. Thanks for having me. And now joining us for the third segment is White House reporter Annie Carney. Hey, Annie. Hello. So in this segment, we're going to talk about uh, West Wing intrigue. And our data point is one. That's the number of top West Wing staffers, a.k.a. Steve Bannon, who openly applauded the president's slow-moving reaction to Charlottesville this week. Um, let's start with you, Annie. The power map in the West Wing has been shifting a lot in the last few weeks, uh, with rumors that Bannon was about to get fired and with the addition of General John Kelly as the new chief of staff. Walk us through some of what who has the president's ear right now and what is actually happening with Bannon. Is he going to stay or is he going to go? Well, the first issue of who has the president's ear right now, I think what we saw on Tuesday was the president reasserting himself as his own chief strategist and his own comms director and his own everything. Like, um, I don't think it was a win of the nationalists in his ear versus the globalists who were on vacation in Vermont. <laughs> I, I think it was just a stubborn Trump who has a long history of kind of backing up the points he made about thinking both sides are responsible for violence, like being himself. 
we like forget often in the like just who has Trump's ear that like he has a brain between the ears too um, that has very opinions. easy to forget. <laughs> it is easy to forget sometimes, but he like this is this tracks with what he's kind of believed his whole life. Um, John Kelly has been trying to limit you know access to the president which I think actually increases the power of television and Fox News for the president because he still gets information from there. Uh, I think it was a big loss for everybody. I mean, Bannon and Miller are allegedly happy. I talked to a lot of White House people who privately say they totally agree with what he said. They think there is violence on both sides. Um, but no one's saying that publicly. Even the people who kind of privately were cheering for him realized that politically it was just – a meltdown, and it was a terrible move. Even if they think he's saying what no, what everyone realizes is politically idiotic to say. One thing I am curious is like, what is happening with Steve Bannon now? Because there were so many rumors that he was going to get fired, and then you know, just within the last twenty four hours, he's given um, three on the record interviews uh, to the New York Times, the American yes. Prospect, and Daily Mail, which to me seems like the opposite of laying low. What does that mean? I have a. So, I mean, Trump was pretty explicit about his disappointment with Bannon in that press conference. He has been really upset about the Josh Green book. Um, he hate, you know, hates the idea that someone else is taking credit for his win. And he said, basically, we'll see what happens to him. Bannon has been – knows that Trump doesn't actually like firing people and isn't going to quit. It's going to make him do it. And so there's all these questions about, like, did Bannon know he was giving an interview or not? I think that, like – as the guy in the American Prospect wrote, this is a savvy media operator. It's not his first rodeo. Obviously, he knew what he was doing. I have a theory that maybe this whole media tour that he's doing right now is like a little taste of like what would happen if Bannon was fighting you from the outside. Um, you know, he like uh, contradicted Trump's policy on North Korea. He's throwing aides, his coworkers under the bus. It's like a little hint of if he gets fired and goes back to Breitbart – What's that going to look like to have Bannon, this figure who likes to create chaos, fighting against the White House? Eliana, what's your take on what's happening with Bannon? I don't think any decision has been made, but I have to – and I know there's serious concern inside the White House about the damage he could do to the Trump agenda from the outside and that that's what has kept him on the inside for now. But it's clear that he and uh, the new chief of staff, John Kelly – don't get along great and that he's become a subject of serious concern for John Kelly, I have to think that his agitating and I believe putting in the president's mind this idea that what was explicitly a neo-Nazi white nationalist rally was really about um, protecting a Confederate war memorial and we see the president tweeting precisely about that this morning. That, that's a Steve Bannon concept, a Steve Bannon idea. We saw him mention that uh, in his interview with the New York Times. I have to think that doesn't help him with General Kelly and is likely to put him on thinner ice in the White House. I mean, is this week just also uh, just a total, you know, RIP for John? all these stories that John Kelly was going to bring order to the White House? I mean, I feel like I wrote one of these stories. The Washington Post wrote one of these stories. I mean, is it possible to bring order to the White House if the president still has access to his Twitter account and is going to sort of follow his own instincts? I think that it's really hard when you don't have the principal on board with whatever you're doing. Um, you know, they tried on Monday to do crisis control. 
having him read a statement off the teleprompter, and he undoes all that work in the next 24 hours. Now we see him tweeting this morning about Confederate monuments. Like, if you don't have the principle on board with your plan, you can't fix your problem. So I think John Kelly is limited in, in what he can do. That said, I wouldn't say it's RIP. I do think that he's going to have uh, he's going to have success, but that success will be limited. Um, I absolutely think he can bring control to what was a you know faction riven and chaotic West Wing staff. We'll see what sort of personnel changes he makes, um, but I also think that he'll organize the policy process in a way that's more conducive to legislative success. And so it'll be interesting to see going forward what sorts of changes he makes. But the changes that don't have to do with reforming the way the president personally operates, I do think he's likely to have success. And what I've heard from White House aides is that by comparison to Ryan's previous, he's somebody who inspires respect and who um, who White House aides consider a leader and are willing to follow, willing to take direction from, don't talk back to, and so on. So I do think that the the chief of staff has two jobs. One is to manage up to the president and down on the staff level. And I think that um, with regard to the latter, he'll be successful. With regard to the former, obviously, um, his, his ability to keep the president in check is limited. I want to talk about personnel a little bit because, you know, one thing that we've seen this week is a lot of White House aides sort of privately expressing displeasure with uh, the president doubling down on his idea that both sides were responsible. But we haven't seen any resignations. Um, Annie, you're working on a story about this. Can you tell us what you found in your reporting? Yeah. So I've been kind of going through the top people that we care about and finding out what their thinking is. And no one's resigning. People are unhappy, but everyone has their own justifications of why it still makes sense for them to stay. Dina Powell and H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor and his deputy, um, have not been happy with the rhetoric, but they think it's too dangerous a moment in the world to step away. So the country, you know, they can't. Um, Gary Cohn is what was reported everywhere that he was furious. Um, but he's very likely to get the Fed chair. And people think – I talked to Roger Stone who said like, boy, wouldn't that be great if Gary stepped down? But like why would he? He's probably going to get the appointment. And then and then lower level aides who are not name brand people have kind of told me that – Name brand people. I like that. <laughs> that um, A, like ones who have been around since the campaign basically said they're inured to this. Like they live through Access Hollywood. They live through a judge – the Judge Curiel, um, they they live through the Comey firing. They're just like, eh. They still think they're good at their jobs. They think that things will be worse if they're not there. Uh, other people talk about like whether it's better to you know fight from the inside or fight from the outside. And they honestly think that while they all admit that the president has problems, that they think it can be a more stable ship with them there. So what's interesting is that everyone's justifying why they can't leave. And but no one seems to be there anymore for Trump, aside from like Hope Hicks and maybe some true believers, Bannon and Miller, who share his agenda. But were they ever there for Trump? Yeah. Well, that's the question. I mean, everyone is there for themselves. It doesn't seem like a lot of the people I talk to are citing their great belief in this president, which I think a lot of the Obama aides would have cited as the reason they wanted to work in the White House. I think aides to every past president would say that. (laughs) Would say that they'd follow this guy anywhere. You know, they believe in him. That's they're inspired by him. No one in the Trump White House is saying they're there because they're inspired by the leader of the free world. 
Um, so I think it's it's interesting. I think Eliana's working on something similar, so this might end up a joint story. We'll see. And Eliana, <laughs> you know, you've talked to a joint. <laughs> you've talked to folks in Congress, staffers and and Republicans there. Um, you know, they also made a lot of noise and condemnations over the weekend about what happened in Charlottesville. But will this actually translate to not supporting the president's agenda or putting sort of any real meaningful distance between themselves and the White House? No. Um <laughs> Look, I like how I, definitive I, I, that was. Yes. Um, in the way I'm thinking about it, I, I really think that – and this is something that Republican leaders grappled with during the campaign. Do we disavow this guy, say we're not supporting him, he's not a part of the party that we know? And their decision was essentially – somebody like Paul Ryan, for example, decided, um, you know, I, I want to be a part of this conversation and try to push this agenda in the right direction rather than be a, a backbencher. Like I don't want to be Bill Crystal. You know, that's that's like how I'd characterize Paul Ryan's thinking. Um, I, I want to have an impact on on where where this train goes. Um, now they're trapped in a bad marriage and they don't have the option of divorce essentially because. Um, Republican lawmakers are – they're not going to be against tax cuts because Trump did this. They're not going to vote against a Supreme Court nominee because Trump did this. Um, so they they still have to work with the executive branch in order to push their legislative agenda through. What I think you might see more of is the House and the Senate passed overwhelmingly by veto-proof majorities um, this Russia sanction bills that the president explicitly did not support. And I had a, a Republican strategist yesterday tell me, you would have never seen seen Republican majorities in Congress push through a bill like that and essentially back the president into a corner it, when George W. Bush was president or, or really any previous Republican president. And you may see more of that. Um, that will be their way of pushing back. But short of impeachment, their options are are pretty limited. I think Eliana's point is really what it gets all down to. Like, are when does any of this really matter other than changing the tone of the presidency and our, you know, how the world looks at us? Like, when does it really matter when Republicans like run away from him and stand up to him in a way that will end it? Until then, I don't know. And I guess it just matters too. Like you know, apart from the Republicans and their cooperation with him, it, I guess it will matter too in the polls. Like how low does his approval rating drop, and then what does that mean for twenty eighteen yeah. and twenty twenty? Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on Nerdcast, Annie. Thanks for having me. And thanks, Eliana. You're most welcome. All right, that's it for us. Thanks, everyone. And a big thank you to our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please rate, subscribe, and write a written review on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. And remember, please email us with questions at nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our panel. And thanks to Rachel Cusack, our producer extraordinaire, our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and Nerdcast illustrator, Bill Kuchman. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>